0: with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Vietney.
1: This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com paracast. And now, on with the show. So, folks, can you believe what you read? I mean, let's think about it. There's a guy on TV who prefaces his show with the words, The spin stops here. And, of course, in that show, on that network, you'll probably find more spin than just about anywhere. But you know what? It's everywhere. It's liberal, conservative media, newspapers, newspaper publishers, crusading newspaper publishers, traditionally have always tried to present a point of view in the way they cover stories, the way they flavor them in their editorials. Of course, if you get a well-rounded view of the world, you read several newspapers. Unfortunately, in most cities these days, there is just one. Like one, one right? If, there, if that. If that, or, which is worse, all the radio stations, a lot of the newspapers, owned by a small number of corporate Institutions, multinational institutions, and they have one concern above all else, which is making money, not informing people, making money, doing whatever it takes to make money. Now, last week we had a kind of a nice guy, really nice guy, Shet Sapolio, really sincere, bright fellow, but the same thing you see in what he said is what we're talking about here. He reads things, say, from the exopolitics movement. He talks to people there is not that critical level of thought to say you know what maybe these guys are making it up
2: maybe there's deception here what you mean people lie stop <laughs> you're well and they trust their senses even worse boy they, uh, we are in trouble as a species well we're toast uh, well we're not toast yet but certainly it seems like human beings we're warm bread are, are we're 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 <laughs> <laughs> We're confused. We're confused. The world is a confusing place, and we'd like to think we know more than we do. See now, the problem, of course, is that we bring this up, and then we get taken to task for being too hard on ourselves as a species. And shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we strive to be better? But you see now, now the para- we're not we're not in the Paracast anymore, Gene. We're in some new self-help show, The Wondercast. It's The Wondercast. Have you wondered about the meaning of life?
1: If we yeah. did that show, we might actually make real money. That's sad, isn't it? The Wondercast. I think the thing you is here, <laughs> you get somewhere if you pretend to know what you're talking about. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't right. matter what nonsense you spew forth. If you're a good enough performer and you pretend to know what you're talking about, I'm not going to mention names, okay? But you know who they are. Well, and if you tell a good story in the right environment, you make a lot of money.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it really comes down to form, not function, the, the external wrapping, the packaging of the message, not the message itself. And Jean, if that's true, wouldn't it be uh, reasonable to think that if there were an advanced civilization or an advanced power of some sort interacting with us, if it studied us and saw how humans are so susceptible to deception, are so willing to deploy deception in every aspect of their reality in every aspect of their interactions, not only with others, but with themselves. At what point do we kick into critical mode and say, you can't trust your senses some amount of the time, because if you step back and look at how your senses work, you realize that there are weaknesses along the signal path, all sorts of weakness things. Things can break down, things can get uh, confusing, things can get lost in translation. This brain that is our conduit to reality is how we per- perceive everything. Is arguably where we exist as as conscious beings in this permutation of reality, in this manifestation. That brain is it, it is in and of itself this incredibly com- complex device that can malfunction, that can misfire, that can do things that all of a sudden throw the entire interface between what we are and what surrounds us into complete disarray. At, at what point do you step back and go, well, gee, not only do I not know anything, I don't know how it is that I can't know anything. Boy, that made a zero sense, right? Right you now, what well, You're making a lot more sense than certain people <laughs> we know,
1: <laughs> you know. And the other thing is you're, if you're really good at your ignorance if you filibuster You know, that's another way. That's another technique, which was, of course, discovered in Congress, where in the old days, they would take out a phone book and read it. Now they just say, I'm going to filibuster and they walk away. It's kind of like. It's not you, not have right. have to
2: talk. you have computers. You have computers
1: doing all the war for you, like in an old Star Trek episode, where you say, "Okay, you ten people are dead. Go to the decompression that, whoa, whoa, chamber." Whoa, 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 whoa! What are you talking? That's that's science fiction. You're not talking about reality. Well, there there is no reality. But the point being that <laughs> if a person, <laughs> if a person basically sounds whoa. believable, they can talk you to death about some idiotic point of view.
2: And enough people out there will believe it because you're so sincere. Well, isn't that, the, isn't that sort of the foundation of sales? That's right. You know, how, to, how to convince you that you need something you don't need, how you can't live without that, that shiny object in the corner. That iPad, <laughs> that iPod, that iPhone, the I, I, I. Well, see, and look, there, we got it. There's the trick with the I. It's the ultimate appeal to ego, Gene. The iPhone. It's me. I, I, me. iPhone, 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 iPad. I, man, you. Whoa, whoa. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, it. me, me, I no. We're breaking
2: it. through the secrets of the of the Apple branding universe tonight We're actually breaking man. through
1: the secrets of the universe On the PowerCast This is probably the most important, significant show we've done Ladies and gentlemen, listen to us Because after you hear this, you will be mesmerized You will be in a reality distortion field
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fat chance Man, I need to have this The synthesizer's going right now I wasn't prepped for this, man I need to have the sound effects in real time as we're speaking. To add them in post-production ruins the spontaneity. Why do we have to do that? I
1: think the only time I've ever added anything in post-production... Crickets. A couple of weeks Those ago, crickets. crickets. I did crickets. <laughs> I love that. That was funny. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. That was very good. The spontaneity of the show is that there is very little post-production except for a few... Uh, uh, uh. Although, David does that every five minutes when he talks. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah, so I have to get rid of that. Tourette's syndrome uh, showing up. Is that that what it is? Of course. But (laughs) you look at the thing here, and this is the whole problem with the fields we deal with. We have people who pretend to know what they're talking about and say the most idiotic things. And then we have the normal people who listen. They're sincere. I'm sure, like I said, the guest we had last week is a perfectly honest, decent guy, well-educated, knowledgeable about science and everything but a little naive, and maybe not using the critical faculties, and he wasn't aware until we were correcting him. You mean exopolitics? They're not really talking about the truth? They don't know what they're talking about?
2: Huh? Four years now, we've been doing them, over four years, or is it coming up on four years, we've been doing the Paracast, and spending an inordinate amount of time reading about this stuff, cutting through this stuff, speaking to people. The, the, The amount of time that we spend on this... Besides the fact that's probably unhealthy, is certainly way beyond what a normal person will spend looking at these topics. Now, David,
1: does that mean that the FDA has a warning against listening to the PowerCast for too long?
2: Uh they should. <laughs> they absolutely should. Oh, this is like yeah, this is uh, oh, this is the show to miss. This one right here. You've been saying but, that for every week, and making more and more <laughs> listeners every week. That's uh, well. At some point, maybe someone will listen to me.
1: All right. But, speaking of listening to me, please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm listening. You were about to say something, and we should cover this point before we get to our guest of the week. I can't recover now because it's Friday night.
2: Why are we doing this? We're recording the show on a Friday night. That's just wrong. We shouldn't be doing this on Friday nights. Why? It's Friday Why? afternoon. By the way, speaking of not it's recording night, it's the dark show, out. What are you talking about? I'm looking. It's getting dark out. It's night get the sunlight. Well, that's because you live in a desert. <laughs> I live in the trees. You live in sand and you know scorpions. You hang from the trees. You said. You should put the, uh, the soundtrack, to Exodus, right here. <laughs> yeah, because that's you need to leave the desert. You live in a desert with bagels. Places called Chompies—that's just wrong.
1: You're asking me to desert the desert. Okay, uh, who do you have yes. in store for us
2: this week, David? Doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> no, I this? don't know, but <laughs> let's crickets. find out. Crickets. In addition to the crickets, Mister Mister Micah Hanks who we're going to we're going to have a good time with I think. We'll see how it goes. Could get ugly. Could Coming get up bad. next on Le Paris Cast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. As you know, the
1: PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of the PowerCast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the PowerCast for this book or another free audio book of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at the dot com. That's news at the dot com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
0: Hi. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials you can also follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap see you online you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast
2: Micah Hanks with us tonight on the Paracast. So, why did you decide to leave your job at uh, Exxon and choose this career about writing about weird stuff, Micah? What gives here?
3: Wait a minute! I left my job <laughs> at Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know my job at Exxon, absolutely. You know, I was I was an old tycoon, everybody knows no. Uh <laughs> when it comes to writing, um, tell you the truth, I don't know, I might have been better if, if I'd pursued trying to get a job working for Exxon, but you know, yeah. here I am writing about weird stuff and uh, you know, if nothing else enjoying it. So <laughs> how's that?
2: That 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 sorta of works. No, but <laughs> so many people get involved in esoteric topics because uh they end up having experiences. Especially in their younger years, that have a real deep influence on them, and uh, I'm going to go on a limb here and guess that that might be your reality. What do you think?
3: <laughs> that might be my reality. In, in what capacity? That I had some strange experiences early on, and uh, yeah, yeah, that that they influenced me. You know, the only the strangest experiences that I've had. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen the proverbial, you know, weird lights in the sky, things like that. The weird experiences, I think, for me were my parents, and I mean that lovingly because, uh, they, uh, were interesting people, uh, they were interesting enough, in fact, to, to give me books about Bigfoot and about UFOs and that sort of thing. So, you know, when I was, and I'm talking like kindergarten, you know, <laughs> so when mm-hmm. I was real young, they yeah. you were throwing just the weirdest crap you can imagine at me, uh, because it interested me. And, and, and the whole idea was, you know, if, if he's, Interested in reading, you know, most kids at that time, you know, I guess we kind of sitting around picking the noses and stuff like that. I was reading about Bigfoot, I was reading Peter Byrne and, uh, you know, Ivan Sanderson, Ray Fowler, guys like that. So, you know, having a ball doing it, it kind of stuck with me. Yeah. So that was certainly an influence, the early stuff.
2: Well, having parents that are interested in these topics is something that I definitely share with you. And in fact, in um, looking through your book that will let you pitch in just a few moments. There's an interesting story in there about your mother's, apparently, your mother's experience with a Ouija board.
3: Right. Yeah. Who um. tell? Um, yeah she uh you know that that also was was one of those early influences you know I grew up scared to death of uh of of you know playing with Ouija boards and things and you know i mean in, in whatever capacity I'm more open to it now, but the story of course was that uh she i think was in high school and had been uh you know uh playing around on on a Ouija board that a friend of hers owned uh there in her neighborhood and uh they began to have a uh sort of interaction with a spirit okay that that claimed to be uh named Ralph and Ralph claimed that he had been driving in a you know a some sort of a convertible car in the 1950s and had driven off of a bridge was trapped under the car and and drowned like that. And so Ralph was able to tell not only this story, but some kind of personal details, uh, you know, to the girls. Uh, I, you know, of course I was young and I'd always ask mom, what did Ralph tell you? But mom never felt comfortable, you know, delving into exactly what he said. But she said it was enough to scare her away and never want to use a Ouija board again. Uh, you know, so that probably did two things in addition to uh, scaring me away from Ouija boards that also kept my mind open to the possibility that strange things may happen uh you know when it comes to you know, whatever you want to call it a ouija board or if you want to use tarot cards anything like that uh sometimes interfaces
2: kind of- to the to the yeah interfaces to the things that we don't understand
3: yeah, exactly. Uh, I think uh, there was a minister one time, actually, that told me uh, it's a spiritual handle on a, or rather, I think a physical handle on a spiritual reality. And that was a good way of describing it also. There are things out there that exist that we don't understand.
2: Well, there's like the opening of this show, the monologue that thankfully you missed, that uh, I think our listeners are still trying to wrap their brains around. I uh, <laughs> See how quiet Gene got? Yeah, I wonder where he went
1: <laughs> Actually, I think I disappeared okay. I think I was abducted by an alien
2: And returned to last week Th- This is not what people expect from the Paracast, Gene It's because we're recording this on a Friday evening
1: Well, therefore We open a new dimensions of total illogic <laughs> Okay, so Mike, I haven't been brought into This world Exploring the strange unknown The weird anomalies And all this stuff Where did you arrive at or did you ever arrive at a point of view or a worldview about what's going on?
3: Mm. Uh, well, you know, to quote Bruce Lee, I think it's really more the uh, the process of becoming, David. It's it's, it's a it's a thing where uh, experiential learning, I guess, is is something that really takes your entire life. You know, and and I'm probably getting to a point where I'm starting to, I, I think, in terms of the way I perceive. Uh, say ufology. I, I like to use ufology because you know, ufology is something that a lot of people kind of tie in with nuts and bolts physical aircraft that are being piloted by aliens from Zeta 2 Reticuli or some someplace way out there in the distant cosmos. And then there are the physicists that argue, well, you know, of course it's it's impossible so far as we know for them to travel here from distant galaxies. So then there are people who have kind of built up this idea, uh, you know, that counters that from the from the believers' side. Well, maybe the aliens are from here and they live under the oceans or they live under. Ground or something like that, or on the dark side of the moon. There's, you know, these theories go back and forth. It, it's all based on perception, and from my own perception, and 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 from you know studying strange phenomena, you know, it's it's getting to a point for me to where I basically went through my nuts and bolts stage, and and now I've kind of come into uh you know I guess a more open-minded approach to all this. And, and that is essentially uh, looking at it. Uh, I guess really, the, the best example of, of, of trying to compare this to anything would be using speculative physis- uh, physics when you have something that, that that you know seems to defy the laws of science. That doesn't mean it wouldn't work, okay, as a scientific law in another setting, okay? And in this case, a setting would be an alternate dimension maybe or a parallel reality. Occasionally, I think there are strange things in this world that are able to kind of waver between two realities, and we catch glimpses of them. They defy physics in this realm, but nonetheless, in terms of science, if we had uh, an all-inclusive understanding of what was actually going on, it wouldn't be supernatural. It would be quite natural. We just haven't gotten to that understanding yet. And so in terms of the speculative physicist, ghosts, UFOs, Foes, maybe even creatures like Bigfoot and Mothman, and a lot of the things I do talk about in my book um, are all uh, you know a little a little easier to understand if you if you consider that there might be another setting in which they would work.
2: Well, that's not even to preclude that they work in this setting where our understanding of this setting is simply incomplete, and I think that's what you sort of said before in a way, um, which certainly uh, and this is something that you explore in your book. Uh, there are many books that explore some percentage of odd happenings, because and, and we on the Paracast try to take the time to weed through what seems to be legitimate versus what's what, it, what are misinterpretations in many cases. But if you take the legitimate phenomena that are going on um, in all of the different quote-unquote paranormal realms, uh, and I, I, I think that the term supernatural is problematic because it takes things and tries to place them outside of nature. And, and, and again, we come back to this idea that we don't have a complete understanding. But in in trying to look at all of these things, uh, uh, part of the problem is that perhaps people try to find connections between different distinct types of events, where indeed what we're simply seeing are different facets of a universe that we simply don't understand. Anybody who studies technology, I think, has a decent grasp on the idea that We think of ourselves as a fairly technological species, but the fact of the matter is that certainly, if you look at the last 2,000 years, um, technologically, we're a pretty young species. And and you, you, in your book, right? You get in your book, you get into uh, this idea that you know you've got this long history of humanity, where, for example, in your discussion of mysticism, you position it as, in many ways, a level of understanding that has essentially been lost. In the translation of humans into a technological era, right?
3: Right. Yeah, and that's once again—that's that's, you know an incredibly good, uh, I guess, kind of a condensation, you know, of of, of what I'm trying to get across. You know, I, I joke with people that the first chapter in the mysticism section of Magic Mysticism and the Molecule is uh, you know a chapter-long definition of mysticism. How do you define mm-hmm. something like that? But but you said it very well. Uh, in that there is a uh, well, they use the term mystical, but there's a spiritual aspect, I guess, of, of humanity that I don't know that we've we've lost the ability to tap into it. Uh, you, you might even say that we've, to some degree, forgotten. But I think that the, the reason for that is that, like you said, as we have become a technological society, as we grow, uh, our mysticism, our spirituality is is becoming kind of. Uh, uh, you know an extension well, actually, I guess technology is an extension of our spiritual selves where where we used to keep these things internally. you know the ancients would talk about traveling to uh, to other realms by you know using meditative practices and, and occasionally things like entheogenic molecules and magical practices as well nowadays uh you know in the modern era we we would try and do this I guess with you know a spaceship or we would try and build a portal you know it's a we're we're taking that spiritual aspect to the unknown that we've always sought from within. We're externalizing it through technology, and we're trying to reach those same places. And so, people, you know, using a space program to try and get out there, and you know, or to use the SETI program to try and, uh, you know, communicate with distant, uh, you know, space brothers in another in another locale throughout the cosmos, or to build a, a portal or a wormhole, time machines, all these kinds of things. They're just externalizations of what we used to internalize through mysticism throughout man's history. And it's really no different except we're just, just—we're like I kind of said, we're outsourcing it as we become a technological society. Well,
2: I mean, do you think that's really true, though? Because uh, what I think, and again, this is something that living in the industrial world, we tend to sort of overlook the fact that uh, we tend to think of technology like computer technology as being fairly ubiquitous. But um, as one travels around the world, one finds that, that's not necessarily true, you know, especially as you go into uh, things like Africa, uh, you find that uh, computer technology is, well, technology in general, because of the cost of it, and the fact that, you know, in many ways, we live in a technological society where a lot of the technology is effectively subsidized. Um, You don't find that as being quite the reality in other countries. Uh, You know, and and again, certainly, uh, anybody going to Europe, or even at this point, large amounts of, uh, uh, well, even South America will find lots of technology available. But even, even so, you know, once you get off the grid, um, you find that you basically revert to a different world. Is the ancients' understanding of things more complete than ours, or is it a different understanding? I think that's one of the things that ends up coming up as kind of a key question. What do you think about that?
3: I, I think uh, you said it best. Again, it's it's not so much that, uh, well, I don't, I don't know that it's it's a matter of, you know, better understanding. They understood better than we do. I think, like you said, it's a different understanding. And that's best, uh, I guess, um, represented by the fact that, as you said, you know, here we are, we're in a first world nation in the United States. And if you go to England or if you go to Australia, you know, you're still going to basically find, uh, well, at least in the, in the, in the you know, the densest uh, population centers, uh, you're going to find that people will be uh, more reliant on technology and and more used to easy living, so to speak, where is, you know, using Australia as an example, you get out into the outback and everything, and there's still some of the Bushmen, you know, that live there, and they choose to kind of live a more primitive, uh, simpler life, you know, and they're happier like that. Um, Africa, as you said, you know, parts of all, you know, all all the four corners of the world, doesn't matter where you go. You're always going to find people who choose to live, and sometimes who don't choose, sometimes, you know, by by virtue of poverty and things like that, are forced to live a simpler, uh, less, I guess, you know, technologically Impinged life, but the, the the point is, is that because of that differential, and because that does exist today, it shows that there are differences in in the approaches to to living and spirituality. And you know, if that was a difference by choice today or tomorrow. But, you know, 4,000 years ago, since there wasn't such technology and it didn't exist, people defaulted to being more spiritual and internalizing their mystic practices. You know, then that works also. And I think that, like you said, it's not a matter of, you know, one group, you know, our ancestors or maybe the people, you know, our descendants will have one that's better than the other. It's just that it's going to change over time. But what is changing, the, the proverbial it that we keep talking about here, is mankind's search for something. I, I refer to in the title of the book, the subtitle, you know, Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. I do believe that there is sentient intelligence uh, that is non-human, that we cape, you know, occasionally are capable of interacting with. What are they? Are they aliens? Are these interdimensional beings? Angels? Demons? What do you want to call them? Again, different cultures have different names for them. So there are all these differentials. But I kind of feel like we're all on the same path, uh, whether we know it or not and we're talking about the same thing whether or not these uh you know you want to call them angels or aliens or, or demons or more creatures you know interdimensional beings they're all the same sorts of, of things external intelligences we know we have known for a long time that they exist in some capacity even if it is some manifestation of the archetypal mind but they're there and uh and there's no right or wrong way to go about getting to them
1: Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual. A PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can. If you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting, then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's com slash Podcasts for a free 30-day trial.
3: Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Powercast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk.
1: We have Micah Hanks. He's author of a book called Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. Of course, that title, the subtitle, implies intelligent life on other planets. You know, the classic theory about UFOs being that they're E.T. and E.T. is here. So are we saying here that we're going to find that intelligence here rather than out there?
3: Well, that may be part of it. Uh, I think that, uh, and, and, you know, once again, there, there are other people who have who have used this, this approach to, you know, let's not take a spaceship and try and fly. You know, to another planet and find life like us. Let's let's find another way to communicate. You know, I think uh, you know the the, the the Hindus and the uh, and some of the, the, the Buddhist um, practitioners in the East refer in their mantras and their meditations to easy journey to other planets. You know, planets in in terms of and that's the funny thing. I think that definition um, in terms of spiritualism kind of talks about other dimensions of consciousness rather than actual physical planets. But then again, you know, I mean, you had, uh, you know, scholars like Immanuel Swedenborg, uh, you know, who I believe in the, uh, let's see, what was he? He he was saying that he traveled to uh, to Saturn and all these, you know, different planets and things like that. Of course, you know, at that point, you know, our knowledge of astronomy was in a tendency. But, uh, you know, there are people who actually do talk about, you know, astral projection and, and, and non physical travel to other physical planets. And then I think that there are non physical places, uh, you know, if you want to call it kind of a uh, subspace that is accessible through mysticism. And this is the kind of thing that I guess maybe, uh, Slavic and, uh, Rick Strassman in that book that they wrote, t- uh, together with a couple of guys a couple of years ago. It was called Inner Paths to Outer Space. That's the kind of thing that they were talking about also. Now, I mean, in their book, they were, not entirely focused on the use of entheogenic drugs. There was some talk of mysticism, but Rick Strassman is, is, is best known for his associations with clinical DEA approved studies with uh, dimethyltryptamine and DNT. That is certainly one way to do it, but I don't think it's the only way. I think that, you know, mystics have been using meditation to access areas of the mind where they say that other intelligences exist. So, yes, you know, semi-intelligences from other worlds, by, I guess, a Western, modern kind of definition, does sort of allude to aliens from other planets. And in my book, I do talk about UFOs a good bit, but I think that, um, you know, there's there's, there's an aspect of it, and as you can tell, it's a very difficult thing to try and define and and explain concisely, especially in in a short period like this but those those uh there there are ways to access something they may be aliens they may be interdimensional beings something like that and i think that there's an internal way to do it as opposed to trying to use a rocket ship to travel to another world and meet an alien and 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 that's the thing is that you know in the present state of of, of technology here on earth um you know our scientists are are you know try, well, as a matter of fact, there are several of them that try and rule out the notion of UFO intervention and interaction with humanity altogether because they say that it's physically impossible to pilot a craft, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of light years to another planet, or even to assume that they, uh, however technologically advanced they may be, would be capable of doing it in their lifetime uh, any easier than we could. Well,
2: at that point, though, when those kinds of arguments are put forward, there's sort of a just a complete compartmentalization of the idea even of uh, having a genetically engineered species designed for uh, long-distance space travel, which is certainly, if we try to look at our approach and how we would potentially explore the universe, uh, it's pretty clear that given a technological lead time, that would probably just from from a funding point of view make sense for us to design, let's say, long-distance uh, uh, types of missions. So uh, you know, just just that point of view alone. I mean, you again, the people who put those arguments forward. One could argue are working with very constrained data sets, real constrained. Right. I agree. But but along those same lines, because we've just you know opened up this can of worms. When we talk about things like DMT, we talk about hallucinogenic substances. You know, certainly more logical people will sort of have certain flags raised, warning flags, where there will be, I think, a legitimate question of the differentiation between the perception of reality and objective reality. You know, uh, and and this is something that I I haven't done DMT, but in my life I have done other hallucinogenic substances. And so, you know, I I can say this having been there, that, you're you're walking sort of a a shaky line when you're saying okay I had a, a hallucinogenic experience and I saw I quote unquote saw which already when you say I saw uh, well gee did that did that uh, a vision uh, get created by uh, light coming into your eye and doing a specific type of image on your uh, cones and rods and your retina oh, well probably not. Um, you know, what you saw, what you envisioned, is not what you quote-unquote saw. So already we enter into this territory where there is a problem, I think, creating a clear distinction between perception and actual reality. And so, you right. know, that, when, right? So when you bring up DMT, it, it gets a little dangerous, I think. You see where I'm I going with this, too.
3: right, Micah? I, 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 yeah, I certainly do. Um, and, and And that's the thing. It is, it's entirely subjective experience. Now, this is what's what's kind of interesting to a lot of people. They ask me now, you know, how much DMT have you done? How much, you know, LSD or anything like that have you done? The answer is I've not done them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And frankly, that that makes a lot of people angry. They're saying, well, if you're going to write about this, you need to have been there. You need to know something about it. You know, I, I hope to maintain a little bit of journalistic integrity when it comes to writing about these subjects. And knowing the subjectivity of the experience, I realized that if I decided to write this book, and actually, you know, there were people who said, look, you know, you should fly to Peru and you should take ayahuasca and you should have an experience and write about it. So many people have already done that and they've written about about their experiences and that's interesting but like you said, you know, that just basically if I were to have done that of course that would have aligned me in in this kind of modality of, of, of you know of the subjective. I would have put myself in a subjective experience and all I would have been doing in my book would be rambling off about uh you know my own experiences, which once again highly subjective, my own perception of mm-hmm. of what? Is it is it the ramblings of my own mind as interpreted while under the influence of a substance? Is it indeed some sort of interaction with another, you know, a strange intelligence, something like that. And also before we dive into it, like you said, you know, we've opened Pandora's box. This can of worms has already been popped. So, I do want to say that I don't personally, and this is my personal view, I don't advocate the recreational use of entheogens and psychedelics. Some of these things, like DMT, for instance, are so powerful that when when Rick Strassman, for instance, was doing his clinical study, the participants had to undergo um, checkups with their doctors to make sure that they right. were, you know, I mean, their hearts were healthy and, and that this was something that was safe to do. They also had to make make, uh, make sure that they were able to get A clean, uh, you know, laboratory grade supply of the DMT. You know, you're not just gonna go out on the street and find DMT that is of the quality that the specimen and people like that use. So there are a lot of dangers in there and I don't think those are the kinds of things that people should toy around with. But the perspective that is outlined in my book and how it relates to DMT is that and this is interesting too the uh, the infusion the the molecule section is the final section in the book um, i guess that's somewhat intentional because i want it to be compared to the previous sections using magical practices using mystical practices to try and access And I'm not saying, you know, this is something that people should go out and do again, but this is something that, you know, humanity has had a relationship with, accessing alternate dimensions, if you want to call them that. You know, altered states of consciousness really is the term I prefer. And the experiences, whether they use a magical process like the psychomantium, that's probably my 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 favorite method of entry, so to speak, accessing these altered states of consciousness. Um, And then the use of something like a, you know, mystical practice through meditation, ecstatic body postures. And then finally... Use of entheogens, there are indeed similarities between those three experiences. And it may be, once again, we could look at this, you know, in terms of kind of like the Carl Jung approach that it, it, these are ways that we alter our consciousness and access elements of our own psyche. But there are clear, and, and this is what's so bizarre, there are very clear similarities between the experiences. Uh, when people encounter beings, uh, they often encounter beings that are similar from experience to experience, even when these people claim not to have prior knowledge. Of the sort of experience they're supposed to have, so that's the look uh, or the uh, the, the kind of angle I'm taking with my book when it, when I do talk about DMT. And again, you know, the entire book isn't about that, but when I do talk about it, I look at it as one possible way that this sort of an experience has been evoked through an altered state of consciousness. But you're right, it's it's, it's something that's very subjective, and you have to treat it very carefully.
2: Here's the thing about that, Micah. And and in reading some of Strassman's research, there's, there's a recurring issue. For example, the use of the description of similarities and experiences being some sort of an objective read. And, and something that caught my eye was uh, this idea that uh, in, in Strassman's research, There were a number of the people who had had dosed on DMT who had talked about the sensation, this commonly held sensation of uh, being examined, being uh, uh, prodded and poked. You know, something that's very uh, uh, reminiscent, certainly, of a very common description of the abduction scenario, right? So that that is used as as then as a justification that well, look, gee, there's. Let's now try to then tie this somehow to maybe during the abduction experience there is some kind of a release of DMT, or DMT is a chemical by which there is an altered state produced by where there is a potential for the beings to interact with us. Meanwhile, Micah, in reading this, something that occurred to me, and I went and did a little bit of research about this, not tons, but what I came back with was that the people who had reported these types of clinical procedures were pretty much constrained to... The people who were part of Strassman's research that outside of that group, that uh, 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 pollings of people who weren't in that kind of a laboratory environment tended not to report that kind of experience. To me, that's very telling, and that. Keeps bringing it then back to this idea of a difficulty in establishing the idea of objective versus subjective when sort of not looking at these contextual elements like the one I just described.
3: Right. Now, I will say also, though, however, I think that sometimes what causes these differentials, and you're absolutely right about that, the, the most. Uh, I guess uh, the most consistent reports of of individuals reporting these kind of technological probing and uh, prodding experiences Mm -hmm. were reported in Strassman's uh, reports. Now, the the thing about that also, I think, is that a Rick Strassman probably did the best job to date at at actually documenting and categorizing these.
2: Oh yeah, and I'm not I'm not trying to downplay his work either. Don't misunderstand me, right? Oh Oh, yeah, uh, I understand
3: absolutely. But the other thing is also is that I think that the method, well, let's see, I think in Strassman's uh, circumstances they were actually injecting it. And they did, you know, they did a double blind and they also used placebos as well to, to measure the way that the experience, uh, you know, was, was received by different individuals. Some people didn't even have a reaction to DMT uh, with Strassman. And during his actual uh, research, I think that, oh gosh, it was only like 20 to 30% that did describe anything that was similar to an alien type encounter. There were also these kind of, uh, you know, swirling mandalas and, and kind of psychedelic kinds of visions, and that seems to be actually something that's more common when people would for instance I, you know i 've heard uh, you know author Daniel Pinchbeck described smoking it once or maybe more than once actually I think he tried it several times that 's one way that people have used it in Strassman's studies it was injected and it was it was received into the body very quickly now ayahuasca the primary uh, i guess entheogen that's present in ayahuasca that's used in South America now granted also I, I want to make this clear, that not all versions of ayahuasca, the yage tea that they use in South have America, have DMT. Yeah. Are, right, they're not all psychedelic because they don't right. all use the same plants. There's one consistent ingredient, Banisteriopsis capi, which is the uh, the liana vine that grows throughout South America. That does not contain DMT itself. That actually mm-hmm. has, uh, I think it's got a, what used to be called telepathine. It's, it's, it's a harming alkaloid that, that really will make you sick if, it's, if there's too much of it taken. But the psychedelic variants of the ayahuasca of course, elicit a very different experience because when you you know absorb that orally you know through through a tea like that it's a longer experience it's more drawn out it's a little milder it's not the full throttle rush that was described by Strassman's participants and these people as opposed to aliens they do sometimes describe reptilian humanoid type creatures if you wanted to make an allusion to ufology but they also describe snakes and feathered serpents and things like that things that are right. actually and this is interesting you know more often associated with those Mesoamerican cultures and I guess you know Quetzalcoatl and things like that, which is, you know, you hear a lot about that these days with uh, 2012 and all this, this <laughs> fear leading up to 2012. Let's not go all down, down that end. path
2: it's just yet, Michael. Let's not go not
3: down that. Maybe not now. Maybe not ever. Path at all. No, no, no.
1: 2012, <laughs> never. It was just a bad movie. That's all. Right. Oh, that's didn't all even it is. See the film actually. I didn't see it either. I don't know if I'm going to see it. Maybe I'll rent it. But that's how it goes. <laughs> Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: We have Micah Hanks and we're exploring other worlds internally, perhaps. He's author of a book called Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, subtitled The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. And just something keeps occurring to me as we go into this inward exploration of some way to perceive other worlds. We go back to the UFO thing again and this UFO mess. And here is the thing that presents a problem and maybe it doesn't so look for your point of view and that is we have people seeing ufos we have supposed physical traces left by ufos we have photographs most of which are fake but some show something that's compelling and we have the radar tracking of ufos so we're seeing evidence of a physical phenomenon so are we dealing with two different things here a physical
3: ufo and a mystical ufo or is it all the same that's a really good question, you know, um, and once again, I, I don't profess to have the answer, but I'll tell you what I do perceive about that um, is that I think that there are aspects of the UFO experience that are particularly uh, um, mystical in nature. I mean, for example, I looked at a, uh, a study from the 1980s that was done where altered states of consciousness were being, the, the study was not to actually try and instigate. To to trigger altered states, it it was a a study that was performed where they interviewed people who had been in incredibly tense situations. I wrote about this in the book, so you may be familiar with what I'm talking about. But for the Mm -hmm. the listeners, of course, they took people who had been held hostage. You know, who had uh, you know, gang members who had been held uh, hostage by rival gangs. There was a an elderly woman who had been uh, you know. Put in a closet in her home when an intruder broke in and kept her in that closet for several days. You know there were all different kinds of people who had suffered some form of stress and, and many of the experiences resulted in out of body experiences, uh, very strange mystical you know uh, experiences where colors and shapes and things would begin to appear and they literally began to you know for for lack of a better term hallucinate one of the experiences actually i think two of the experiences in the uh, study uh, involved people who alleged that they had been abducted by a physical ufo craft there was a man and his son who had been driving down a road uh, in arizona and it was late in the day and suddenly they uh, they begin to feel dizzy and they see a craft and a blinding light and they both you know described this experience where they were taken aboard a craft and studied but what was interesting about their experience and this is something else you know we were talking about how Based on circumstances, how many similarities really are there between one person's experience and another's when it comes to UFOs or mystic experiences and things like that? Many times, people who may claim that they are taking aboard a nuts and bolts physical UFO craft describe things like floating down tunnels, you know, hearing voices, being shown things from their lives. These are things that come, you know, very commonly during mystical experience, and, and you know, whether it be via meditation or using, again, as I mentioned earlier, the psychomantium. You know, that's that's something that that, that frequently takes place during the psychomantium, the the notion of traveling through a tunnel and also seeing deceased uh, loved ones. Strangely, people who who have uh, claimed to have been abducted by UFOs and aliens describe the same sort of thing. I don't think that you can really rule out the fact that there is physical evidence of UFOs. Uh, and, and the sad thing is, is that there are people out there. You know, I call them pseudo skeptics, but hardline people who want to say that there is absolutely no evidence of UFOs in a physical, technical. Capacity coming. Yeah, that's just that's just them.
2: inaccurate. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I you know. think
3: that is inaccurate. You're right. So the thing is, is you can't rule that out. But by the same token, looking at people's actual experiences and interactions with beings that they claim came from space, you know, on a craft, sometimes they don't interact with beings at all. Sometimes it's it's purely a technological environment, and they're just taking aboard a craft. And you got guys like Antonio uh, Vila Boas who uh, claimed that he was, uh, you know, used as intergalactic breeding stock, and that he uh, he was actually uh, bred with a very human-looking woman, <laughs> you know, with kind of large Egyptian looking eyes, you know, back in the, I think it was the 19, uh, late 50s or early. 57,
2: I think. Yeah, I think it was 57.
3: Yeah, yeah. so, you know, you can't rule out the fact that there's a physical, a very physical aspect to all this, but, and maybe it's just that the, the shock of being in such an alien environment, maybe there's something technological about it that triggers a mystical aspect. But so many times, abductees describe something that's almost similar to being in an out-of-body experience. I, I remember uh, in the book *The Chajunga Canyon Contacts*, one of the uh, the abductees describing seeing herself from outside her car and looking back at herself sitting in the car as a being approached the window. And I'm thinking, you know, this is fascinating. It's a uh, it's an out-of-body experience. So what is it about physical interaction with with alien? uh or UFO craft that that can elicit a strange what we would call mystical or altered state of consciousness it
2: could be something as trivial as a very high emf field i mean we know that, that we we know that uh, and this is something that you also bring up in your book and specifically when you talk about uh, a friend's experiences with the psychomantium um that we haven't really even touched upon yet but we know that the, the and, and <laughs> human perception, our visual perception, our our perception, all of these things can be very deeply influenced by a number of elements. When you bring up the interaction with UFOs, right? I mean, just high EMF fields. The idea that um, people are are reporting these bizarre psychic experiences when they supposedly interact with these beings. Now, if you've got beings that can affect someone's psychic state to the point where they have huge memory loss, where they're basically seeing things at that point, And this is, this is, I think one of the, the, the meta topics, one of the meta questions, Micah, at that point, Micah, the, 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 the problem is how do you trust your perceptions of what's going on? Knowing that the human mind is so susceptible to things, even just like a suggestion. Much less the effects of an EMF field on a person's psychological uh, uh, makeup at any moment. Um, the imperfections of our senses, because the, and and this is something that also came up in in the the, the preamble to the show was this issue of deception. One of the things that seems I think clear to people who look into this is certainly the abduction topic um, and the scenarios that are reported that are potentially credible is that there's a very large degree of deception going on just the, the notion of wiping someone's memory I mean that clearly there's a deceptive element to that so so how do you trust your senses when talking about the stuff and especially if you're talking about ingesting psychoactive substances that dramatically can dramatically change how one perceives the reality around them.
3: Absolutely. Uh, clearly, we begin to realize that there's an intangible. Uh, quality to all this, and uh, you know, yes, I claimed that I saw aliens, and I took a drug when I, when I, you know, I decided I was going to go see these, and I saw them. Experience and perception is always a kind of difficult thing because uh, you know, once again, you've got people who claim, you know, that they want to see an alien and that they've always wanted to see an alien. And what happens when they take a uh, an infugenic substance, you know, and they they use some sort of substance to elicit that experience? You could say that someone who wants to see an alien is going to see an alien, and and when it comes to 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 uh the the ability um, that, uh, that electromagnetic fields might have when it comes mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, affecting the way a, a person thinks and the way that the mind might function. I think that that's really a big part of it. Kind of getting back to what you were saying earlier, uh, about that, that, that sort of is a subliminal thought that I've had when it comes to the abductee experience. Um, you know, people talk about receiving radiation burns and seeing things like a corona discharge, you know, on the outside, uh, on the outside of a craft, which is essentially what may, you know, cause this glowing plasma-like, you know, kind of a, you know luminosity that these uh, UFOs are described having so often. So if there's something that operates in an electrical manner, and it and it's 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 strong enough, you know whatever its power source is, to emit that kind of energy, certainly we know that uh, you know close, uh, you know, uh, well actually certain people suffer from a, a kind of disease, and I'll get to that in a moment. But most anyone, when uh, when close enough to a significant source of electromagnetic. Um, energy will tend to start having some sorts of, you know, disorientation, some more than others. Right. And I think that there's a, a, a term for that, electrical hypersensitivity and multiple allergy disorder. But, uh, what this, what this basically describes is, you know, when someone is close enough to, let's say, like an electrical pylon or something like that, that's real high, out, you know, high output and whatnot, they, they will tend to have, uh, kind of strange, also, uh, almost, uh, hallucinogenic experiences. So, You know, human perception, you know, it's difficult to try and say, is there a sixth sense that we're tapping into, or are, are, you know, five known senses being compromised Due to our, you know, innate physicality, you know, it's not a weakness, but it's just how the human body works. And there is something that causes that strange experience, and that may be it. And who knows? All these archetypical things that we see and that we encounter sometimes, you know, may indeed be something, uh, you know, that's literally, w- you know, within ourselves, within our own minds, and that we are. Tr- it's it's almost a, a process of the mind trying to understand uh, strange phenomenon or to try and interpret a multiple. Uh, you know multiple sources of of I guess stimulus and sometimes that stimulus can be intense you know EM uh, radiation or something like that so you know once again yeah experience is something that is very subjective um, and, and drawing it back to the earlier uh, conversation when it when it pertains to uh, you know physical evidence of UFOs and things like that that's where it starts getting interesting is when you have a physical aspect of it and then you've got these more subjective elements that, that are almost mystical in nature the two tend to go hand in hand, but what you know is, is one causing the other, or are they causing? Are they, are they are they all just one experience, or or do they influence one another and they're separate things? That's what's difficult to understand, and I think that what it comes down to, uh, you know, at the, at the fundamental level, is that it is part a a phenomenon that is external and b human perception of that phenomenon.
1: Well, one thing that might be raised here from what you're saying is that if there was an objective set of E.T. or other dimensional beings, higher intelligences, whatever, could they possibly be taking advantage of the way human perception works to manipulate, mold our perceptions of what's going on to hide the truth?
3: You know, that's a that's a great theory. But, you know, once again, I mean it's and, and, and not to sound like a doubter by any means, because I I I've thought that you know, as a matter of fact I can tell that we're all kind of on the same page when it comes to the interrelationships between the human aspect of the of, of experiencing these phenomena and then the actual phenomena themselves. But I think that you know it's it's difficult to really say because we know so little about the nature of you know said phenomena. In this instance, it being UFOs and, and UFO uh, interaction, um, if, if we don't know exactly a what their craft are and what the the power source and therefore the you know the uh, the actual capabilities or, or rather you know what sort of influence you know as a result of that power source a you know a human mind might undergo. As a result of of close proximity to them We we know so little about it that it's difficult to speculate But if if that's what we're here to do And sometimes I think that really that's the best thing We can do, you know, really Is speculate uh, Then indeed uh, that has to be, uh, you know, a consideration Okay, so the other thing Is here is The
1: forces that create Our perception of these things Do they have physical Impact? And what is physical Anyway, if we can see things That Maybe aren't there in the way that we think they are. Could that force also leave imprints in the ground, immerse, or create images that are able to be photographed, or even images that can be detected on radar? It
3: starts a whole can of worms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's neat. That brings something to mind. I'm going to take it back to South America here and talk about some of the Brujas and and the shaman. There who uh, who claim that using various and once again you know people kind of tend to gravitate towards DMT. It is no doubt a very uh, potent uh, entheogen, but you know it's not a the, the only uh, entheogenic substance that, that that elicits this sort of a uh, you know response in terms of altered states. And the other thing too really is that uh, you know who knows it may actually be uh, one of the more common <laughs> things because DMT as we know is uh, produced in the human body. It's it's still speculated on as to where it comes from most people think it's the pineal gland but uh you know that's that's still a kind of a a point of discussion right now so that being said in in south america uh, there, there are various uh, other infusions that are used, and these, these um, shamans actually have said in, in various parts of South America that occasionally, after they use mystical dream quests and things, and also many of these shamans who do these dream quests, if you want to, I think I'm borrowing that term probably from uh, from Kabbalistic magic and uh, and, and some of the, the Jewish magical practices and things, uh, but um, I like the term the dream quest or the the, the spirit journey. Sometimes something that they they describe. They uh, many of these shamans can enter these these spirit quests and these dream journeys and things um using meditation alone, and they claim that occasionally they will awake from a a very long meditative session, if you want to call it that, and they will have uh, the seed of a small plant in their hand. Uh, now, this once again is just you know based solely on their interpretation of, of 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 whatever they are experiencing, and of course it's their testimony alone. But they claim that they will receive little seeds that when planted and these they, they claim are something that is some sort of a byproduct of the actual mystical process they've gone through they receive these seeds plant them in the ground and a new plant that they did not know previously will grow from this from this seed they've said that this happens many times now you know I don't know it sounds kind of uh, allegoric to me almost kind of like a fable um, but there are parts of the world where people claim that things like this actually do happen it, it sort of also uh, reminds me of something that the, uh, the Tibetan monks discuss and those are um Tolpas. The, uh, the the Western word, I guess, that would be an equivalent for a, a tulpa would be a thought form, and that basically entails uh, something that is, uh, you know, a byproduct that manifests physically. Harvey, the intense. Uh, Harvey. Harvey. <laughs> Harvey. Harvey. Yeah. Okay, I'm not Harvey. With, with Harvey.
2: Oh man, Jimmy Stewart. Harvey. Oh. forms, yeah, Harvey. What do you mean? Yeah, of course you
3: know what Harvey is. That's that's a tulpa, uh, right? I mean, that's, Harvey, that's yeah, and yeah, yeah. And, and there was another one actually, another pop culture reference to that sort of thing, uh, as well. I, Sarah Palin, she's a that. tulpa, right? Tell me she's <laughs> Sarah a, a tulpa. Please tell me she doesn't <laughs> exist. Please
2: let me wake up from this bad dream. Please, she's a tulpa. It would explain so much. She exists. Oh, man, please, please. Gene, tell me she's a tulpa, Gene. Well, you know what? That's not a tulpa. That's your worst nightmare. I think she's a schmecky, but don't get me started. Oh,
1: please, we don't get, we want to get started. You just think me. about it. Everybody's going to call us now and say, oh, my God, the Paracast. They're talking about politics again. Uh, no, we're talking about tulpas. <laughs> we're talking about tulpas and Palin, man. We're talking about political tulpas. Political tulpas. <laughs> That's the new band, the yeah. political tulpas. You know what? Someone's going to form time that time. band out there. Right now, just think in a garage. There are six guys. Stop, Stop it. Two Five. girls. You know, one doing lead singing, one doing backup. Four guys, one girl. Whatever. It's whatever combination Not whatever. you
2: want. Whatever. We about. have to plan this very carefully, like Perlman would. You got to like plan this it's carefully. Whatever, yeah, it's whatever you want it to be. Yes, yeah, so if you can focus your your thoughts enough, you can create it, guys. We're so. making a thought form. There you go. It's the secret. There you go. <laughs> That's no longer a <laughs> secret. Yeah. Don't go, oh, man. Oh, all right,
1: let's, let's rein this in. Let's rein We're this. almost getting to a collective unconscious here, but before yeah. we pursue any of that, we have Micah Hanks. He wrote a book which raises all these incredible thoughts about things called Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, the search for sentient intelligence from other worlds, but it's not looking through a spaceship. It's maybe looking inside ourselves to see what's going on and maybe to find some way... To understand the nature of reality. That's what it's all about, the nature of reality. We'll have more on the other side of the Paracast.
2: Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will, too.
0: So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs?
3: I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to.
2: Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietny. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I just had to do that. We're exploring the nature of reality, including David Viedney's reality, with Micah Hanks, author of Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. Now, the meta question is, what do you tell the people who only think of things like UFOs as a physical phenomenon? It's all physical, it's E.T. Ghosts, of course, are the spirits of dead people. All the strange things that go bump in the night what do you tell them when you explore things in this fashion?
3: Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, for years uh, I've I've spoken to people uh, about Bigfoot, for instance. And then once again, I ask, uh, although I'm sure, you know, here on the Paracast, that's something that comes up in the subject matter. But nonetheless, I say Bigfoot and, and I see people cringe, you know. So let's prepend that by saying, you know, suspend our judgment and let's use Bigfoot. Sasquatch is an example, okay, for this conversation solely, whether or not you believe in a giant hairy ape running around out there. The, there is a physical aspect, okay, yes, we see footprints in the ground, we hear people discussing, uh, you know, seeing these things, you know, stomping through the forest and whatnot. And then you have uh the 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 strange reports uh that come in from time to time uh you know first of all, bigfoot's so elusive we never seem to be able to keep up and catch this thing. I was talking to a guy in Pennsylvania a few years ago at a uh, at a sasquatch conference, and uh his name was Rick Fisher and he's a he's a a bigfoot and cryptozoologist uh kind of a researcher and and Rick told me that he'd been driving along a road in an area in Pennsylvania where uh, he'd been investigating a you know, rash of reports of a, of a Sasquatch-type creature, and he says he was just amazed to be driving down this road by a cornfield one night and see Chewbacca walking right you know, down the middle of his lane in front of him, illuminated in his in his headlights, and he thought, my gosh, I've been studying this you know, and talking to people and talking to witnesses. I didn't know if it was real or not, and then I see this. I'm looking at the thing. And then he said it didn't leap off the side of the road. It didn't run off into the corner field. It didn't jump straight up. He said it just vanished. It disappeared. I said, what? And he said, it disappeared. And I don't know what to make of that. But then it was at that that moment that he began to think that there was a non-physical aspect to this phenomenon. Now, I'm sure poor rick fisher you know has probably told that story to some people and then they've looked at him and said no you you have mental illness you know rick seemed like an incredibly intelligent guy when i met him he he seemed like an incredibly uh uh you know discerning kind of person as well and and he and he didn't tell this during his, his speaking engagement he actually told me this privately afterward and said, when I give experience, uh, when I give you know talks about Bigfoot, and I'm trying to talk to most people who look at it as a nuts and bolts type phenomenon, you know there is a creature or there isn't a creature, and it is either physical or it is a, it either you know there's no non physical and it still exists. If it's not physical, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. When I'm trying to talk to people about it like that, and and I have this experience I've had where I see this thing walking down the road in front of me, and it just vanishes. Chewbacca the Wookiee, where does a you know a seven foot tall Wookiee go? You know, so he says it's a little difficult to uh to uh, to speak to both crowds but i know what i saw and i've had my experience now that being said you know yeah there are going to be people when you know when i'm Kind of talking about, I guess you know the, the the notion of using kind of an internal method of trying to find and contact and interact with sentient intelligences. There are going to be people who say, well, that's just that's just flaky, you know. That's 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 ancient religion mumbo jumbo type stuff. You know, I mean, aliens come to Earth. They drive flying saucers. They fly these things, pilot them around. That's what you need to accept. And it's funny because you you also mentioned ghosts being spirits of the dead, um, and I know what you're you know what you're what you're describing there is you know people who would accept a spirit manifestation is a spirit of the dead and nothing else which is kind of I guess a cultural staple if you want to say that yes indeed there may be something else but it's funny that that we would equate people who would say that UFOs might be only nuts and bolts craft and people who would say ghosts are merely and only spirits of the dead because it's like you know my gosh you know how can you just compare something that is so overtly perceived to be physical like a UFO spaceship flying through the atmosphere and then something that's so non-physical as a spirit of the dead being able to manifest you know you've got the opposite ends of the extreme at least peripherally. Now, frankly, when it comes to science, if we were to delve into this deeply enough, and, of course, the, the the subject here is not to talk about how ghosts manifest, but we could we could do a whole show on that. It's fascinating to me that there are, uh, nonetheless, people that want to kind of tie, you know, they, they want to hold on to uh, these kind of cultural staples, ghosts as spirits of the dead, UFO craft as, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, craft of some sort, Bigfoot as an actual being or some sort of an entity, but it's real and it's physical. You know, all these things that are strange phenomena are called strange phenomena because we don't understand how they work and what they are. And again, I have to draw back to the, uh, the argument about quantum physics in terms of, uh, or they not quantum physics, but speculative physics, in terms of what fits one setting, okay, as a scientific rule may not work. It may It may appear, it may work, but it may not fit another setting. And I think that sometimes if we want to think about things in terms of string theory and alternate dimensions, there are aspects of reality that do exist, but that they waver between the fabric of two dimensions. And and it can be difficult to say that that will appear all the time as wholly physical. And I think that this is the only way that we can kind of look at it. Uh, you know, and, and granted, I'm sure that, and I am aware of that. There, the fact that there are people who would say this is completely pseudoscientific what you're talking about, you know metaphysical mumbo-jumbo but i think that using the comparison with speculative physics allows us to look at how scientifically these sorts of uh, you know manifestations whether they be ghosts or ufos or anything like that can appear to be physical in one capacity and then completely defy the laws of physics in, a, in, a, in another situation and and that's the whole thing is that we know so little about the phenomenon itself how else are we supposed to interpret it and the problem with science today is that the people who want one you know solid answer they are either this or they are nothing at all unfortunately limit themselves and and what the end result ends up being is, well if we cannot say that they are both this and this and we can't say that they are what we want them to be then we must assume that they just don't exist at all so mainstream science tends to just kind of push these things away. And I know you were asking about people in general who would come up and say, well, what about UFOs or ghosts or whatnot? But it comes back down to mainstream science and, and just basically the, the, the general opinion, especially in the Western world, that if, if we cannot quantify and we can't record and track and, and study and understand it, then it doesn't exist. Clearly, that's not the case. With all the the, the hundreds of thousands of reports of UFO and, and, and really not just UFOs, but other strange phenomena that occur each and every year, every day, for that matter. You can't deny that there is something going on. Clearly, we can't track it and record it and discuss it as, as, as well, thoroughly Micah, as we would like.
2: Micah, you can absolutely deny it's going on. That's not going to change the reality of it oh, going yeah. on, right? I mean, people yeah. deny things all the time. And one of the things that it, we've, we talk about on the Paracast all the time, getting back to the contextual issue, is that uh, we all have to step back and realize that there are people who are going to say this is all nuts and bolts. There, there is no high strangeness factor. Now, excuse me while I go to church and ask the priest for forgiveness. Right. There, thereby, essentially, completely contradicting everything they've just said. You know, belief systems are are, are thus that you can you can uh, subscribe to anyone, and um, basically, it's really this comes back to psychology. I think. Where, where people simply want a pre-digested answer that has the benefit of branding and cultural acceptance. It's like you know, give me, give me, give me the answer that I can deal with. That basically I don't have to think. Because when you start to look into the more unusual, more esoteric aspects of these weird paranormal phenomena, uh, what you end up coming up with is that. Indeed, a legitimate inquiry gives you, at the end, not more answers – But a whole lot more questions and the problem is that that in no way provides any sense of understanding even if the answer is wrong they're just like give me the answer so that I don't have to think about it the answer is wrong well I I won't worry about it until something in my life requires that I pursue this box further right I mean you've got that combined with the fact that people tend human beings at this point in time are so overwhelmed by their realities by the reality of their day-to-day life I think um, it's such a complex world that when it comes to trying to open up boxes, they're going to provide even more layers of complexity to try to try to understand. People don't want that. They just, they just want to have a little bit of peace and quiet, you know, a little bit of mystical desire, because one thing that does appear to be indeed the case for human beings is that there is some aspect of our psychological or spiritual makeup that requires... The sense of the mystical. It's kind of like an essential utility, like gravity and oxygen. We require some level of mystical reality. Otherwise, our lives almost seem pointless in a way. And so there are different levels. It's like uh, the paranormal stuff today in many ways, I think for a number of people, has become a proxy religion. It's something they can believe in. There's a supernatural quote-unquote component to it. And they tend to follow you know, the, a certain group. Oh, it's the extraterrestrial hypothesis because... Oh, I don't know why. Because because some authorities figure says that this is what it is. Okay, you know, I'll jump on this bandwagon. That's that's ends up being about human psychology, not the attempt to understand the universe.
3: Mm-hmm. And and it's funny you you brought up you know going to church and and, and people contradicting themselves and religion and things like that. Really, mm-hmm. I think all all study of phenomenology. Uh, and frankly, all you know things mystical really are religion because what it is is it comes back down to uh, belief to me. Now, there, there are people who would would argue about that, right? But it comes down to belief in what we choose to believe. Mm-hmm. The uh, the skeptics, you know, and I, I don't think skeptic is a bad word. I'm, I don't, and maybe you can tell this. I'm, I'm a pretty skeptical person myself. In fact, I feel like some people are going to read my book, and they're going to come away from it thinking Micah A Hanks is a closet skeptic. This guy claims that he's talking about UFOs and claims he's talking about altered states of consciousness. This guy's a skeptic. You have to be skeptical, but when for you skepticism becomes, well, I don't believe. Well, you you believe in something nonetheless because what you believe is, you know, refuting anything that does not fit your your kind of you know, category mold of what you perceive reality to be. And the skeptics, the quote unquote people who want to, you know, actually I think a better term would be debunkers. There are skeptics. Right. Who think and who are you know rational and they you know they're probing about it. I, you, you never want to use that term probing when you're talking about UFOs, by the way, but I, I let it slip. <laughs> boom. You know the, yeah, those people. <laughs> this is this kind people, of you know, show we've
2: had this week, ladies and gentlemen. Just adding.
1: <laughs> it
3: oh, really man.
2: is. Well, no, Micah didn't have the benefit of hearing the little preamble thing, man. It was I, I did. It, no, it was psychedelic. Yeah, it was. It, it's not good. It, actually, I'll be shocked if people get to this part of the show because they probably turned it off during that first <laughs> ten minutes. That's all Jean's oh, oh, fault, well. by the way. Gene really screwed the pooch on that one. Do you see
1: how it works, ladies and gentlemen? Whenever goes wrong, it's my fault. If it goes right, it's David's fault. It never goes right, though, so it's never my fault. Let's so the, the point being, of course, Poor that Gene. <laughs> we're both to blame. We have to share the blame, ladies and gentlemen.
0: This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free Whois for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain names. Specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at Facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is Leslie Kane and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David
2: Biedney.
1: We are sharing the blame this week with Micah Hanks, who didn't really sign on for that, but he's finding out that he has no choice, because he wrote a book called Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. So it all gets back to the basic core question is, how do you separate this subjective, perceptive reality that we see and what might be really underneath it all, if anything?
3: How do you separate them You know, and, and and that really kind of touches on things that we've uh, that we've talked about already. Uh, it's, it's it's difficult. You know, th- th- that's, that's the whole thing. I'm not convinced that the subjective things that people experience are not really one and the same as what we would call objectivity. And you know, once again, it, it gets kind of it gets kind of unfair when when you try and label. I mean, clearly, when a person walks into a field and see a UFO comes back, tells their family what they have seen. Well, we can take that person's word for it, but people do lie. This is human nature, also. That's the that's the problem in terms of using. We're trying to use the scientific method, for instance, to to rule out uh, you know uh, certain certain uh, you know possibilities, you know, in in coming to what I guess is that ultimate truth that we're always trying to find you know objectivity would be 12 people standing in a field and they all saw the ufo but what happens you know when those 12 people all have different opinions about what they saw you know you take them aside and separately each person tells you something a little different what happens if those 12 individuals were members of a religious cult and they had gone out there because they believed that you know uh, that there was some sort of a deity that was coming to uh, pick them up that day how are they going to interpret that so you, you know just by saying that well if we have several people, several witnesses, this clearly becomes an objective situation. It's, You know, not always is that going to become more objective. It once again brings us back to people's worldview, people's people's belief. You know, you can use the term belief, religion, however you want to call it. Cultural conditioning, how that too. Yeah. Conditioning? Well, yeah,
2: yeah. absolutely. You can't deny that sure.
3: either. Well, but, you know, people, yes, of course, we can deny. I correct myself again. Anyone can deny, and it happens every day. But I think the thing is that, uh, you know, no, regardless, there is conditioning that occurs on every level in society every day. And all these things, it's not not always a bad thing, either. I think that these things kind of, you know, end up getting, uh, they become, you know, kind of bad words. That's a dirty word. We don't talk about that. Society's conditioning us, you know. We're just playing for the man. We're sheeple. You know, it's not always a bad thing. But nonetheless, these things that affect our perception of reality are going to literally almost change the way it manifests and what it ends up actually being. I mean, what is anything other than what we interpret it to be, which is interesting, it brings it back to the notion of a tulpa. You know, how much of what we see in terms of phenomenology is something that isn't really some sort of an extension from within ourselves?
2: Well, and you know what? So you've just pointed the planchet directly at poltergeist stuff, because there's oh, yeah. a right there is a, 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 a type of manifestation that for whatever reasons there there seem to be strong indications that this is in many cases where you have this legitimate kind of telekinetic stuff happening where you know at first there was a thought that this is somehow externally sourced right and then when you come back to where these consistent elements of oh there's the the prepubescent teenage girl in the house and uh... you know this comes up over and over again and uh, you know, at first there's this thought that well the the entity is focused on her and then well no actually if you take her out of the equation nothing happens, put her in. And not to say it's not interesting that, oh look, gee, there's some kind of a you know, telekinetic manifestation from a young adult in a in a tumultuous period of their lives where there's this weird hormonal activity going on and it seems to imbue them in many cases with some kind of an ability that's a legitimately interesting thing not necessarily externally sourced though
3: right you know and gosh it's funny you bring up poltergeist i don't i don't want to say i have a problem with the notion of, of poltergeist and poltergeist activity but it is interesting how that is compartmentalized separate from uh, a a quote unquote haunted house or a haunting or something mm-hmm. like that you know mm-hmm. we know a haunting to be once again a Spirit of a dead person who's lingered, you know, from the uh, from the afterlife, you know, and they are they they have unfinished business. We assume all these different kinds of things, and yet a poltergeist, you know, and, and that's true that you know a lot of the time prepubescent, you know, girls sometimes boys as well, but you know mm-hmm. typically young teenagers are kind of I guess conduits for this kind of activity that occurs. But I don't necessarily understand why because we've witnessed in certain uh, situations where you know strange you know telekinetic and paranormal manifestations have occurred if, it, if there's a common element and it involves you know a young prepubescent girl or you know just uh, you know or you know even uh a, a, you know a teenage boy for that matter and and they're typically associated with those kinds of situations that's something that's categorized categorized wholly separate when the actual individual elements that constitute a quote unquote haunting really haven't changed i think that once again there may be some portion of that that is that is manifesting and i use the term you know these these individuals might be conduits a young girl who's who's going through emotional angst during the teenage years may literally actually become a kind of conduit conduit for some sort of a spiritual force Science still doesn 't explain how you know plates come flying off of walls, you know how how uh, you know, books fly open on their own, yeah. know, how things oh, yeah. to sort of move through the air i mean so it 's funny because we can say oh that 's all that is, and really it 's not addressing the key the, the heart of the actual phenomenon, which I guess is problematic for most people because once again, you know Dave or Jean, um, could you guys pick up a you know can you move a pencil with your mind for me right now? you know can you open a book that 's sitting in front of me right now from where you 're sitting? Once again, we can't explain the actual phenomenon that's occurring, and to try and label it and categorize it as something differently, it's always been kind of strange to me. But nonetheless, I guess you know, if you want to call it a poltergeist, you know, if you want to say you know that that's something different because you know teenagers are involved, I understand why. But to me, that just seems to be an indicator as opposed to an explanation. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I wasn't trying to offer it as an explanation. I, I think I know, it's just right. You know that.
2: So, so you know, the idea is that. When we're talking about these topics, and and this is always weird for me because um, I've talked about some of my experiences on the show. There are other experiences that I haven't talked about, but and just uh, in the interest of disclosure, (laughs) I'll make a little revelation here, okay? It's funny because I brought up little aspects of this in the past, and I put out little bits of this to see how it'll go over and... But, but I'll make a statement here, okay, um, that in my own experiences, there, there, and, and this is something that even just in the last three or four years has happened now more than a few times where I have been in spaces or I have been near spaces, physical spaces, where I very directly, <laughs> and in a couple of cases, with certain types of physical manifestations, I have I have been in situations where I have detected and and in some cases seen some sort of presences, entities of some sort in a few different locales. I actually I think Jean, and you remind me if you remember this or not, I'm guessing Jean won't remember this, but when I came back from my second trip from Argentina, did I talk about the event that had happened in the a French Legionnaire's restaurant. I don't know if I talked about it. I
1: don't recall show. you mentioning that, seriously, no. If you did, maybe, you know, I've forgotten, but I yeah. don't
2: recall it. Chances are you, you wouldn't remember. But here's the thing. Now, all, all, all joking aside, I mean, there was a situation, and I uh, maybe this isn't the right time to talk about it. Maybe we'll save this for another okay. episode. But, but no, what's the problem? Well, um, I had been taken to a um, good friend of mine in Argentina who was taking me out, like, every night while I was there. Um, taking me out to increasingly elaborate dinners. Uh, it's a father and two sons who I'm very close with down there, and uh, they were they were uh, students of mine, Photoshop students of mine for, for a long time. Anyway, long story short is that um, one of the last nights I was there on my second trip, I'd gone down for dental work, whole other long tangential story. But we went to this. He took me as a surprise to this restaurant, this extremely wonderful French restaurant in this building, that I guess was the equivalent of the French Foreign Legion foreign, it's the French Legionnaire Hall I get, you know, like, uh, Buenos Aires, a lot of uh, uh, Europeans settled there um, after multiple wars, after World War II, uh, a number of uh, uh, French had, had uh, moved to, to Buenos Aires, anyway in this French Legionnaires Hall, the restaurant was in the back um, in the hallway, there were these medals and stuff on one wall, and there were all these names painted on another wall um, of people who had been members of this organization over the years. Anyway, we're sitting there having dinner, and and I won't tell the long version of the story. The short version of the story is that I saw something in the hallway outside of the main restaurant in the hallway where all these names were. I saw something while we were eating. Hmm. I saw I saw some sort of activity. when I know that, I know there was nobody in this room. And at one point, it really kind of bothered me, and I got up. I said to my friend Mario, I'll be right back. And he was like perplexed. I got up and walked into this other room uh, outside of this room where the restaurant was, and I could feel something in the room. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, I notice up on the wall, there was one name that had this very soft glowing effect behind it. It was physical. I looked up. I'm like, oh, my God. And I walked over to the wall where this name was like had like this backlit effect behind it, and I realized that that and it was a woman's name. That person was who I was perceiving. That she actually, apparently, you know, and here I'll just say it: she could sense that I knew that her presence was there, and she wanted to show me who she was. And literally, I mean, it was just. I mean, I looked up and. I see this name upon the wall. Just one of the names has this like backlit glowing effect behind it. Now, you know, did this happen in my mind? Was it really happening on the wall? Well, for all practical purposes, I was looking up at it. It looked physical. I don't know if it was just like a, a trick my mind was playing on me, but I looked up and there was a definite back backlit glow effect. Anyway, I go back in, and then it fades away. And then I kind of knew that was her. When we left the restaurant that night, and we actually closed the place down, we were there very, very late, as the Argentinians are wont to do, especially the crazy Argentinian friends who uh, are having a good time with you and they don't want the night to end. Those people never sleep. It's out it's out of control. But anyway, as we were leaving, uh, there was this uh, young fellow leading us out, and I stopped him and I asked him, hey, I, I got a. We we're out in that hallway. I said, excuse me, I want to ask you something. Please don't think this is odd, but have there been any reports of uh, some sort of ghostly activity here? And he looked at me, and his eyes got real wide, and he's like, yeah, the woman. And I was like, the woman? He's like, yeah, my father, who is like the chef here, um, has said that late at night that he's like seen this woman walking around here, and at one point he he felt her tap him on the shoulder. He said that there's, yeah, there's this, and it's, he's, he said it's weird because most of the, You know, you think most of the people have been here have been like, man. He's like, but yeah, this is like ghost of a woman. And I walked over the wall. I pointed at her name and I said, I think that's her. And he's like, what? And and it turns out, I mean, he ended up asking my friend if I knew where we were going to be going that night. And the whole thing was that Mario had taken me to this place as a surprise. I had no idea we were going there, so there was no way I could have known what the building was. I couldn't have done any research because this kid was like really stunned that I knew. And he was like, how did you know this? I said, well, uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but I, I think I saw her. And the kid was like, well, how do you know that's her name? And as I'm just, now I'm telling him the story of what happened. And he's like looking at me like, oh. And Mario, my buddy, is like looking at me fascinated because I had been opening up to him about some of my experiences. And I was like, look at this. Like, here I had an experience with you tonight. So the point of all of this is that, and based on other experiences I've had, I, there's no question in my mind that there is some sort of. Um, manifestation that seems somehow tied to some kind of human spirit and again with this particular situation I strongly got the sense that she knew that I could tell she was there and she wanted to to get my attention just almost as a sense of validation so this question David a fast question the name you
1: saw you said that is the individual that I saw is she someone special someone well known or what
2: Uh, no I don't think so I don't think so at all honestly and I I, mean, I wish I could tell you that I remember what the name was. I don't. I don't remember her name. Uh, no, it wasn't that she was anyone special. There were a few women up on that wall. Um, no, the kid didn't seem to know anything about her, and I didn't do any follow-up because you know, I was like leaving like the next day. So I, I can't really say I did any extensive follow-up, but I also figured at some point I'll come back to Buenos Aires, and I'll tell Mario, hey, take me back to that place. I want to do some due diligence. I brought the story up because... A, it's not the first time this has happened. B, it's it's like the fourth or fifth time this has happened in the last three or four years. Almost every time this has happened, I've had other people with me. So I have co-witnesses for most of these 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 experiences. And in that particular case, there was a definite visual manifestation. I'm of the belief that these things can absolutely happen. I don't necessarily understand what's happening. I don't sense that, you know, like Christopher O'Brien might say, well, maybe you saw the trickster. No, I I don't know. I mean, it's a possibility. I didn't get that sense. The very strong feeling that I had from this was that she knew that I could see her or that I knew that I could directly perceive her presence there, and she just wanted me to know. That's all that was it was almost like a sense of validation as if um, I you know that, that just like when I looked at her name and when, it's like when I had the thought oh that's her that's when it started to recede it's almost like she wanted to make that point, and once the point clicked in my head, that was the end of the experience. secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and affording phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free You've entered another dimension.
3: You've entered the
0: paradise.
1: What's clicking in my head is that we have Micah Hanks, and we're talking about UFOs, paranormal phenomena, And looking inward rather than outward as a possible solution to all these... Strange things. Micah, did you have any reaction to make about what happened with David?
3: You know, well, gosh, yes, yeah, several. And, and first of all, let me say, you, you know, of course, Chris O'Brien, uh, he's a friend of mine, and the uh, trickster thing to me is, uh, you know, although I think that there are people that actually label the trickster as various, you know, um, representations of, of paranormal, you know, as distinguished through a constant, you know, interaction from, I guess you'd once again call it a, a, sent- a sentient intelligence, you know, some mm-hmm. sort, something that literally kind of thrives on messing with people you know to, a, to some degree um, I think that's another cultural interpretation in my own personal uh, you know uh, estimation but but with re- def- with direct regard to David's experience there uh, I know that you mentioned that you had co-witnesses my my first question is did the co-witnesses did they see the apparition that you were able to uh, no. to, to see they couldn't see her but they they were there and they they, they saw you witness her
2: uh, yes they yeah and and you know he was there when the kids said you know it's a woman. There's a woman. I mean, that's when Mario really looked at me because I had gone back to the table, and he's like, "What just happened?" And I said, "Oh, um, let me try to explain this." Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, uh, so the fact that I had picked up that it was no, so yeah, not a direct witness in terms of him seeing what I saw. But other people there, have seen it, though, right? Yeah. Other, uh, well, apparently, other people. This kid's father had seen this woman. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and, and uh, it, it's and here again. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth here. I'll put it all out there. And, and I'll regret this later, <laughs> but like I said, um, in the past three or four years, it would appear that the number of these incidents where I, I sense these things seems to be increasing. I can't explain that, but there, there have been a number of situations in the last three, four years, five years now where, you know, and it's, it's usually been in, pfft, I don't expect it. I never know it's going to happen and and uh i have a certain sensitivity for these things so this is something that it uh, it's been going on for a while for whatever reasons like i said the last 3 4 years the the number of uh times when i sense these things seems to be increasing now i, I, I don't pretend to understand this i can't say that i know what it is that i'm perceiving And and just, Micah, just for for your reference, the listeners of the show, regular listeners know this. There is one particular experience I had that I won't go into now because there's a whole episode of the show devoted to it where I did with a friend in uh, Southern Florida, in Hollywood, Florida. We did have an extended encounter with a full body apparition that we, we both saw. Had interactions with at fairly close proximity uh, to the point where we also watched her dematerialize. Um, well, outside daylight conditions, it was just completely out of control. So the point being that that's one that I've talked about on the show at length. I had my, my friend came on the show, my my buddy Bill came on. We both talked about it uh, at length. There's a whole episode. So you know that that's sort of an extreme version. Besides that one extreme version. There have been a a number of less extreme ones where there is corroboration by people in the space that indeed there is some ongoing manifestation. So I seem to have a sensitivity to
3: this. Well, I'm glad to hear that personally, and and I'll have to interject here that you know, there, there was a time when I was younger where I felt like uh, there there were individuals you know who would come to me and they'd say I'm I'm kind of sensitive you know I'm a, and I kind of perceive things and you know I'd kind of I'd kind of think okay well that that's that's okay, I've I've known a lot of people like that I've known people who've claimed to be you know outright psychic, I've sat at the dinner table with psychics before and had them actually literally pick words out of my head you know and it, and it's kind of strange it doesn't happen often. But uh, but the thing is is that you know when you when you start considering these things you know and it's kind of like Rick Fisher's story about the Bigfoot that disappeared from earlier. It's mm-hmm. not a very typical Bigfoot experience, but you know once again this is a very same uh, individual that I'm talking to, and he had something that really wasn't unlike your experience with the apparition in the field where you and your friend witnessed this thing literally just disappear right there and dematerialize after an interaction with it. So. I think it's good to hear people, uh, you know, who who otherwise seem to be very irrational, and who you know who appear to be very probing. And you know, after you know having this conversation, we've been talking for an hour and a half now, and both of you guys seem to be like that. And to hear you say, I think I have a sensitivity to these sorts of things. It's not, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Succumbing to belief. It's opening your mind to a possibility, uh, because clearly there are things that we can't understand, and I wish that truly more people would. Say it's not unscientific to to suppose. As soon as we tr- as soon as we say this is what it is, that can get a little pseudo scientific. But absolutely, I you know, science is a tool, and science is something that we've always used to try and understand the world around us. And w- when did it become a law? And when things didn't meet or fit at that law in every uh, criteria? When did when did those things become taboo? And that's exactly what most esoteric phenomenon nowadays, uh, you know, ends up being labeled as is taboo. It's 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 pushed away it's pushed aside there are clearly things that we don't understand and clearly things that we can have interaction with and then when they dematerialize and you know they've manifested and then they disappear and we realize what we've experienced uh you know we're labeled crazy i I don't think it's as simple as that and i don't really profess to have an answer but it's clear that we need to toss out the old idea but not toss a baby out with the bathwater, and say okay there's clearly something going on here how do we Interpret it and deal with it.
1: Well, that also raises the next question that I was going to ask you. Micah, okay, we see from this episode and from four years of doing the PowerCast and many years that I've read about the strange and unknown and about David, <laughs> his personal experiences, what he's read, what you've researched. How do we explore these things? If we're dealing with something so subjective, just the mere fact of us investigating it might change what we're perceiving, right?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and and it's funny because you say how do we how do we go about doing these things? How? That's the word everybody wants to use. And there were several people. I mean, you know, my book. I, I pitched it several different publishers. You know, before it ended up um, going to print. And uh, you know, people had told me, you know, if you really want this book to do well, you need to rewrite it as a how-to book. Don't be. Don't use so much narrative. Don't put so much. You know, so much knowledge out there in a journalistic way. You know, how to contact. You know, other worlds, and sentient intelligences. Now, you know, that talk about opening a can of once again, I've already said that I don't personally advocate the recreational use of psychedelics like DMT. I think they're too dangerous. I think that there are powerful, moving experiences that can be elicited from those. You know, whatever the the root of those experiences may be, we don't know. But the thing is, is that if I were to write a how-to book about that, you know, uh, I'm going against everything I'm saying because to me, I feel like that would be an encouragement. I, you know, I just want to put it out there that this is something that occurs these are three you know loose categorizations magic mysticism and the molecule that I want to put on these kinds of things and they in, in terms of the way that I put forth you know the uh, you know my research I think that I do outline ways that people have tried to to understand and how they've tried to uh, you know research and study and learn about these things. One, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm steering the conversation here by any means, but it does keep coming to mind the psychomantium being an ancient what I refer to loosely in the book as an ancient magical practice that the Greeks used for communicating with spirits of the dead. It's fascinating to me that that is a tool that had been used because it, it elicits some sort of a psychological response. And uh, Are you guys familiar? You guys know what the uh, the psychomantium is, correct? Uh, I, in reading, I
2: found out about it by reading your book.
3: Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, is this an okay time to, to briefly talk about Absolutely, exactly please. what that is? Because this yes. is something when it yep. comes to how do we Try and learn about this phenomenon. How do we, and how does that, as you said, David, how does that change our experience and modify it? The psychomantium is something that's been used for in you know, thousands of years in ancient Greece. You know, we we read, you know, in the in the Odyssey and the Iliad that there was this underworld. You know. And that there, that you could travel to this uh, underworld and speak to an oracle of the dead, it was always understood that that was probably just kind of a uh, you know kind of a folk tale, you know, something that was woven into these Greek epics. And then there was a uh, archaeologist in the 1950s by the name of Dechiris who actually went to the Hill of Saint John the Baptist and found the archaeological remnants of some sort of a labyrinth, sort of you know chamber that went underground. And uh, at the center of this labyrinth, there was this great big cauldron with this sort of um, sort of banister built around it and everything. And he had assumed this was the actual. Oracle of the dead, you know, a sort of underworld that, that that was actually referenced in some of these Greek epics, and 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 the reason why he had thought that it might actually exist was because you know Herodotus and Strabo and some of the the Greek scholars from ancient Greece had actually referred to this place as though it actually existed, not as though it were some part of their religion or part of their you know uh, you know folklore. So. He believed that, of course, what was happening was that the oracle was was probably using some sorts of uh, you know psychedelics, maybe even or something like that. And if nothing else, you know, probably using practices like you know sensory deprivation, you know, fasting and things like that to kind of evoke an altered state, under which these initiates would enter this labyrinth and they would go and they would find this central chamber. And once they got there, the oracle of the dead would literally dress up like a spirit and jump out and and have this interaction with people so that they believe they were talking to spirits. Dr. Raymond Moody, who wrote the book uh, Life After Life and also Reunions in which he talks about the psychomanium. and of course it was Moody that I learned about the Cyclomanium from First, at a uh, workshop that we did um, where I met him I think uh, two years ago but uh, it was actually right around the same time of the year and we were having the same sort of problems with snow at that time if I recall just like I'm doing right now I almost lost my power class today <laughs> but uh, Dr. Moody had looked at this notion of this cauldron sitting there and he took uh, took it from a different angle he knew of these Greco-Egyptian documents that talked about mirror- gazing and shoe stones and things like that. And he would wondered if maybe they'd filled this cauldron with either oil or with water and used it as a reflective surface to try and uh, use for purposes of something similar to scrying. And, and scrying, of course, is where you take a small reflective surface. I know a, a dark uh, colored, pre- preferably black ceramic bowl filled with water works really well. And in a fairly low light setting, you sit the bowl in front of you so that you can stare into the reflection and kind of, you don't want to see your own reflection. You just want to stare into the surface of the water at an angle so that you're able to peer into kind of clear optical depth this is essentially what moody thought might be happening in this labyrinth that was discovered under the hill of saint john the baptist so he put together in a in a i think he actually modified a barn back behind his house he put a comfortable chair and he put some candles and then a a a mirror that he got from a pawn shop or a thrift store and uh, and put this on the wall adjacent to the chair just above eye level so that people could sit in this chair and they could stare into this mirror not see their own reflection but just stare into kind of the optic. Depth of the of the mirror's reflection, and he just wanted to see what kind of an experience would happen. He wanted to see specifically if any kinds of manifestations occurred that might have been similar to what you know these epics described that were taking place there at the Oracle of the Dead, where I believe Odysseus, of course, went to to speak to a deceased uh, individual and try and find his way home. So. Moody expected maybe, I think, 10% or so would have something happen, and I think it was closer to 50%. I mean, he, he said that there was a, a ridiculous number of people that saw various things, and not all of these people claim that they saw spirits of the dead, but some of them did. And some of these individuals, as they using the the psychomanium setup as a portion of a sort of grief counseling session, Moody would talk with them and they would they would you know, he would counsel them and then at the end of sessions after they'd had several sessions he would put them in the psychomantium and tell them, Just sit and relax and stare into the mirror and I'm gonna come back in ten minutes or maybe twenty minutes and I'll check on you and you're okay, just stay in here and this is your time and just kind of stare into that mirror and just let your mind go and just kind of meditate you know and people consistently began to have these experiences ones who were who were suffering from from I guess you know separation or or just or general grief from the deceased love you know having a deceased loved one often would say that this deceased loved one that they had spoken about would appear in the mirror and they'd even sometimes have interactions with them now moody thought it was something that was psychological but this clearly uh, kind of outlines the whole notion of uh, of a uh, first of all an altered state of consciousness and then also the notion of uh, you know spiritual of the dead, you know, coming back to the realm of the living and interacting with us
2: well, I don't know I'm listening to what you're describing and it sounds like hypnotic induction to me
3: Well, yeah, absolutely, and that's the thing. Now, Moody, and I asked him about this. I said, Moody, do you think that that these are are ghosts coming to the mirror? And he says, no, 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 I think it's something that's psychological, and see, I do too. What I'm saying, though, is that it's interesting that even in a psychological circumstance like that, obviously using you know a a variation of sensory deprivation, that something so similar to the kinds of experiences people have in, quote-unquote, haunted houses might occur. Now, not all people see spirits of the dead, and what I'm interested in is, I don't have actual um, information about this because, once again, and this isn't the kind of thing where everybody has a psychomantium in their backyard. I mean, it's just <laughs> right, very simple right. setup to build, as you can tell from what I've described. I wish that there were more people who had experimented with it, but I'm curious as to whether or not other experiences have happened with psychomantiums that do not involve merely spirits of deceased loved ones. And Because even if it's a solely psychological experience, which I believe it is, I'm interested in what other kinds of phenomena might occur and uh, and I'll interject briefly that you know I hope in the future to be able to work more, you know along those lines, just to try and you know to, to categorize and to try and put together information about that experience, because uh, I'm a member of a group called LEMUR. That's the League of Energy Materialization and Unexplained Phenomenon Research, and it's you know of course founded and led by Joshua P. Warren, who wrote the book How to Hunt Ghosts. And we have a laboratory here in Western North Carolina where we do try and, uh, you know, not only do technological type experiments that pertain to this kind of phenomenon, but we have a psychomanium set up in a room there at our laboratory. And at, at some point, you know, and actually I'll, I'll also say Joshua is a licensed, uh, he's a certified grief counselor under Raymond Moody for psychomantium grief counseling for what that's worth. And, and not to diminish it, but of course, you know, that's, mm. that's just one aspect. Raymond Moody, of course, you know, holds, I think, an MD and he's, he's done this for years. Uh, But nonetheless, I would love to see what kinds of other responses are elicited in that same environment. Because like you've said, I agree. I think it's something that's that's probably kind of, I guess, how did you word it? A hypnotic-induced... A hypnotic
2: induction. And it sounds like part of a standard hypnotic induction process.
1: For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown... Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits
2: you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next
1: We're not trying to hypnotize everybody, but we are talking to Micah Hanks. He is the author of Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, the search for sentient intelligence in other worlds. We don't have a lot of time left. And something that has occurred to me through the past hour and the 46 minutes or so, and that is collective unconscious. So the messages that we get from these higher beings, UFO entities, whatever... Is that Mother Nature talking to us? Mankind conveying a message to other members of the species? What?
3: Oh boy, and that's the big question. I think that trying to define that would be like um, you know asking me to chalk up the meaning of life right here and,
1: and now. Actually, <laughs> in one minute, because that's the way it's done these days.
3: Oh wow, in one minute? Okay, well.
1: No, I've no, got you my, got more of that. I've
3: You've got, got, got my two minutes, maybe. I didn't know I was running for office, but today, like you guys said, it's turned into a political show now. So <laughs> but uh the ultimate uh, information that is being given to humanity. That that's a good question. Um I know that there are individual experiences where people feel like they're told sometimes humorous but profound things. For instance, uh Dennis McKenna, the brother of Terrence McKenna, who wrote the book Food of the Gods, and of course he was a you know, again, a person who was very outspoken about, you know, his belief that entheogens and, and I think he favored psilocybin, but he wrote a lot about both the Dmt and uh, psilocybin and some of those different kinds of antigens. Uh Terence McKenna thought that they that they were literally divine and that these things could could you know elicit all kinds of you know experiences with with otherworldly indulgences. He, uh, he 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 had coined that term hikes or uh, fractal elves and things like that. But Dennis, unlike Terence's experiences with these spastic little you know kind of self dribbling basketballs and in, in these Dmt hyperspace realms that he would visit. Dennis wrote one time about taking ayahuasca in south america and and in, in his experience he had this kind of a vision where he became a water molecule and and he was literally pulled into the roots and through the the body of the liana vine in the ayahuasca the primary ingredient of course and uh, and as he's being pulled into the plant and, and, and being processed he's experiencing photosynthesis and he said it was one of the most revealing experiences he'd ever had and as he was coming out of the uh Experience, he said that a voice spoke to him. And this is something also that's very consistent with these kinds of altered states, not just those that are chemically induced, but also people who experience sleep paralysis, out of body experiences, near death experiences, things like that. Typically, there is, if there's a voice heard, it often occurs just before the person, you know, snaps out of it. This McKenna was coming out of this experience in a voice, which he presumed was maybe the spirit of the Liana Vine itself. It says to him, You monkeys only think you're in charge of things. And I thought that was so funny because he accepted that as though it were almost some sort of a message, you know, some sort of divinity. And who knows? I mean, it it, it may not have been anything. But it's funny to me because, well, that's exactly what it is. It's funny. You know, there's there's humor a lot of the time that comes with these messages that we receive from these, quote-unquote, higher powers or from, from these, you know, uh, otherworldly intelligences, but but so far as what their, I guess what their culmination of what they're trying to get across to us is, you know, I don't know. I mean, people say that they're, uh, you know, they're abducted by UFOs and that they're shown photographs of world destruction and war and change your ways or you're doomed, you know, uh, or 2012 is going to happen and, you know, there's going to be...
2: Well, you know what? Away. Actually, actually, uh, Micah, there's not a single, to my knowledge, there's not a single compelling UFO Abduction encounter that contains that element. A lot of okay. the bogus ones do. Well, it also I think you, a lot of the Hollywood, <laughs> you know, UFO uh, abductions. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, but we're not. You know, we know that you know the Hollywood stuff is all entertainment. So let's we merely discount all of that. You know, and again, in talking to people who claim to have had the experience, in in the numbers that we've spoken to on and off the air, Jim Sparks, who is clearly uh, not the real deal. And I think we've made that case on the Paracast very, very directly. And I think there's everything to support the idea that Jim Sparks is basically making stuff up. That's, you know, his key message is that the made up stories contain that element, not not the legitimate stories. And and, and one of the things that. I mean, we, we try to do on the show is, is acknowledge the fact that yes, I mean, certainly people for entertainment value can choose to study the writings of people who are making stuff up to try to understand the human condition or the human psyche, but that has nothing to do with paranormal phenomena. That's that's basically people's wackiness and desire to be the center of attention. It's got nothing to do with reality, you know. So so it's it's important. To put that stuff on the side, you know, we'll let the coast-to-coast shows give those idiots a platform. That's fine. They're just looking to fill hours. We're actually trying to a- ask real questions here and deal with trying to understand things, not trying to turn this into entertainment.
3: Right, but you guys do a great job with it too. I mean, the hard questions need to be asked, and and I think that that's what it, what it takes me. And really. Once again, you know, to get back to, to what you said earlier, how do we go about trying to study these things? And then, you know, how are we going to continue uh, to, uh, to interpret strange phenomenon once we've begun to try and study it? Because what happens is it begins to change our perspectives and worldview of the phenomenon that we, <laughs> that we were seeking to begin with. And it's always going to be something that's evolving, our relationship with it. There are different aspects of it that are witnessed in terms of phenomenon and how we categorize quote unquote paranormal activity or the, the supernatural. Uh, And I know that this is kind of a blanket statement, but it makes me wonder sometimes how much of it isn't just all really one strange kind of uh, thing. I mean, just one one large, whatever it is that just exists absolutely outside our ability to touch it and to grab it and to feel it and taste it and smell it. You know, there is something that exists beyond. And all things in a a phenomenological sense tend to have aspects of this unseen realm, if you want to call it. It's really hard Mm -hmm. to try and... Distinguish. What else can you do when it comes to trying to understand this? But to try and talk through it, to try and understand. You know, like you you talked about on the Paracast. You know, gather reports, ask the real questions, ask the difficult questions, and really try and come to some sort of a conclusion about what is going on.
2: I don't think we can come to that conclusion. Though no. I think that, that that was yeah yeah yeah, yeah no it, so we're at the very edge of human understanding here. I mean this is the, this is we're we're right at the at the precipice, and so uh, you know you're looking into the abyss, saying this is how deep it is. No, man, it's the abyss. We don't know how deep it is. It's, it is the unknown. Thank
3: you for what it is. Yeah, sure. yeah. Right. No, that's, the, you know that's the bottom line. But the thing is, and this is the other thing, too, for me, it all comes back to the human experience. And I've said this before. I think I was telling uh, Greg Bishop about this on his program one night. I just enjoy it. you know. If, if trying to understand all this, and even if I'm going to spend my whole life talking in circles about it, if this is the sort of thing that you know I'm going to dedicate at least a portion of my life to, to trying to understand this stuff, even if I get nowhere, the process of becoming, to quote Bruce Lee again, is something that is just fascinating to me. And i I just I love it, you know, I live for it. In capacity, so you know that's what I do is I, I get enjoyment out of it and I certainly hope that you guys do it sounds like you have a pretty good time on the program
2: no actually no I have to say that really from my personal point of view all, all joking aside, all of this has done nothing but really uh, lower the quality of my life oh, and God. no i'm I'm being dead serious it's really messed my life up in a lot of ways oh, and right. and absolutely and if I had the choice were I to be able to choose to relive my life have, having no paranormal experiences looking at this and, and thinking to myself this is just ridiculous i would absolutely choose that route in order to avoid all of the difficulties this has created for me absolutely and and i know a lot of people might get very upset to hear me say that but honestly this has, i can look at my life and say all of this stuff has done nothing but complicate things tremendously and and I absolutely feel that way and and man I wish I could hit the undo switch on all of this stuff in my just my personal life sure you know the things I've seen I really wish I had not seen absolutely Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know it it takes me back to the time I was 11 years old and my brother dared to leave that book on his coffee table flying saucers from outer space by Major Donald Kehoe because it corrupted me forever I mean, through the years, I've strived to get away from this thing, you know, and then I come back into it, you know, like one day I'm talking with David, let's do a radio show. What? We have to be crazy to do this kind of thing. I mean, you know, I think in retrospect, I think people have benefited from having at least one more voice of near sanity in a place where everybody else is doing it for entertainment, not to put down some of the people that you've mentioned because you've been on the shows and you've dealt with people that we respect, that we'd like. And they're trying to do the same thing we are, which is try to understand what's going on. So let's look at this in the next few minutes. Where are you going to go from here to try to understand or improve your understanding of everything that's happening here?
3: Oh, boy. <laughs> Once again, the hard questions. No, no, I love it. It's, it's funny because I have I've felt compelled to, uh, and I don't know why it always comes back to UFOs, but after I finished Magic, Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, you know, of course, you know, going through the editing process and everything, I, I I got to sit there and read and reread my own book several times. And and now I'm getting feedback from people. And and the, and the feedback I've gotten is pretty expected. Uh, you know, it's as I had expected. And it's been mostly positive. And, and by the way, that being the case, I really enjoyed. Enjoyed this interview also, but the next thing I feel compelled for some strange reason to to look at ufology again. And now that I've taken this internal kind of perspective of maybe there are sentient intelligences, and I do talk about UFOs a lot in the book. Although that you know there's there's also mention the of spirits, the dead, archetypes, and psychological manifestations, told us all this stuff. I, I feel compelled like there's something that is pushing me to look at ufology not in, in, in you know with the expectation that I'm going to solve some sort of a mystery or I'm. I'm going to notice something that someone hasn't noticed, but for my own sanity, I feel that that, that I'm compelled right now. Uh, I just have a hunch, sort of, that I that I want to re. Examine ufology. I want to look at the nature of the phenomenon. I I got out a book, uh, you know, several books by Jerry Clark, He used to be an editor at Fact Magazine. He compiled so much stuff about ufology. And once again, you know, there's a lot of compilations out there that just talk about report after report after report. And as you said earlier, I I agree. Also, I say this in my book that sometimes I think it can be difficult and even detrimental to to the study to try and draw associations and parallels between all phenomena because sometimes things may not be related, and, and, and it could it could dilute the experience when you try and make associations uh, when, when there may not be. But nonetheless, looking at ufology as a whole, that's where I see myself going next. I want to try and look at this again. And maybe I do want to consider the actual physical aspect of it. I've looked at this non-physically, which is something that is still, I think, pretty taboo, but I think that it's being accepted more and more as we go along. Maybe some of the entertainment aspects of, of, of you know people's fascination with paranormal, i.e. all these reality TV shows and things like that. I don't pre- prescribe to a lot of them, and I don't enjoy watching a lot of those myself, but I think that maybe that kind of saturation on the market has maybe kind of helped open people's mind to it and so it looks like mine are becoming a little bit better accepted. Now, having done that, I want to look at the nuts and bolts aspects also, and I want to try and, for at least my own estimation, I want to try and reevaluate ufology. That's that's where I see myself going now.
1: Okay, where can we get a hold of you if we want to learn more about the things that you've done, that you're doing, and that you plan to do?
3: The best way to do that is to visit my website, The Graylian Report, and that's www. Uh, www.gralienreports.com and of course you know you can buy my book there through my website. It's also available on Amazon. But if you go to the Graylean Report, there's literally on the right hand side of the screen right there. When the when the when the website pops up, there's click here to buy, and you can buy the book just like that. Of course, you can also sign up for a newsletter there, and uh, if you really want to try and keep up to date with things I'm doing, there's some information that I'll send out to my subscribers there that doesn't appear on the website. So I always encourage people to uh, sign up for the newsletter, and you can also So email me directly there from the website. So, uh, you know, I'm always happy to take questions from people.
1: And I'll tell you what, if you forget about the spelling of the Grailian Report, if you click on the name Micah Hanks over at theparacast.com, wherever we mention his name in connection with this episode and any other episodes he'll be on, you'll be magically, mystically taken to his website.
3: Not molecularly?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I couldn't say that. And I'm glad you did. So that's (laughs) molecularly. That's right. Molecularly. (laughs) Molecularly. We've had Micah Hanks, author of Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. Thanks for joining us this week on The Paracast. Thanks, Micah.
3: Thank you so much, guys. I really did enjoy it. This was fantastic.
0: The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.